And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruit and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. If you think you know the answer, you might give the zoo a call right now at 2... It's 5.30 in the morning, and Mike Reiner is already at work. Hey, 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 everybody. It is time for another episode of Square One. Good day, good night, whenever you may be consuming this. I'm really having a hard time getting my head around the idea that these things live in perpetuity. Like, I'm used to putting something out there, and when it's gone, it's gone. That's it. But not so with these podcasts. In the world of the podcast, you put something out there, and it lives forever. It'll live way long after I'm gone, which could be tomorrow. But uh, we have another one coming your way today here on Square One. I would be Mike Reiner. I host this thing. This is episode seven. It's being recorded on the 29th of September. Always like to give you a little frame of reference for when this came down. We've got a very interesting story for you today. Early one morning, the sun was shining. I was laying in bed. And I was thrumming through my phone looking for whatever. Just seeing what's going on out there. Having a hard time getting going. Had a gig the night before, so of course, it's going to be a slow roll for me then. I come up on this story on a website that I'm aware of, kind of. I've seen a few things on there, here and there, but it's never been enough to get me to go back to it on any kind of consistent basis. The website is fan-sided. And the story... It was the tale of this guy who was writing about how Luka Doncic of the Little Mavericks saved his life. That was essentially the title of it. I'm paraphrasing there a little bit because I don't have it right in front of me. But that was the title of it. So I think, okay, let's see what this is about. And I dive in. And long story short, I was about not even halfway through the story before I'm going, holy shit, I've got to get this guy on square one. And I put the iPad down, pick up my phone, go to Facebook Messenger to see if I could find the guy who wrote it. And sure enough, there he is. And as things turn out, not only does he have all manner of local ties, which are, are he goes through those in the story, But as things turn out, he is here right now. And so I hit him up and he says, why, yes, I would love to be on your podcast. And we are going to make that happen today. He is Colin Cable. 
and he is with us. Hello, how, Mike. Hi, Colin. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for agreeing to do this. First of all, I have to issue a disclaimer because this is really weird. Episode three of Square One, I had a guy named Colin Cahoon on here, the guy who <laughs> reconstructed the Stevie Ray Vaughan helicopter crash. And I swear to God, I'm not looking for guys who's a lot of Colin first, alliteration. Yes, I'm not looking for guys whose name is Colin and the first two letters of their last name are C-A. It's just worked out this way. It's a competitive market. It is a competitive market. A lot of competition out there. All right, so let's get into a little bio, biographical data here before we jump into the story. Sure. How old are you? I am 34 as of Sunday. Sunday, I turned 34 years old. God, you look like you're 16, man. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) Boy, that is some skin on you, dude. You're doing great. Thank you. Thanks. Are you from here? Originally Rockwall. Yeah, Rockwall, Texas. You grew up in Rockwall? Yes, correct. Okay. Now, the story goes that you are a musician. Correct. Of some type. Describe what you do, what you play, and... And give us a little bit of an idea about your background there. Sure. I play pop rock instruments, mm-hmm. bass and guitar, mm-hmm. and kind of fiddle around on piano, use it to write. Um, primarily, I'd say I am a singer-songwriter. Mm-hmm. Um, so my technical proficiency on instruments, you know, I was always more worried about about the song, writing the song. Uh, most of the bands I just sang, uh, just wanted the freedom of movement on stage. Right. Like that. You were the front man. Correct. Okay. Um, so it was all doomed from the start. I think, <laughs> you know, I never stood a chance, but, uh, yeah, grew up playing shows, started around 12 or 13, started playing the door, um, 13 or 14 years old and went for a while. Well, it's kind of ambitious. A little underage there. A little. Yeah. They were the only place that would let us in. So of course you, Probably could show up at one of those places today and be tabbed as underage. <laughs> Maybe. That's so sweet. I hear that. <laughs> All right. So you the the story begins with you in New York. Correct. Now tell us a little bit about how you wound up there, what had happened that led you up there. Were you playing in bands here locally or, or I was, yeah. I started in Dallas. I had a, a pop rock band called They Were Stars. I did some solo stuff uh, that was a little more folksy. Mm-hmm. Um, never really. Did found... you guys gig or, or? Oh yeah, we played everywhere. We did, you know, Trees and the Tea Room still was around back then. Okay, what years are we talking about here? Oh, they, it was probably 2007 ish through 2012. Okay, and 2012 is when I headed up for the East Coast, but. Uh, yeah, spent a bunch of time down here playing shows, um, struggled to find an audience, uh, felt like maybe the move was to, to try somewhere else. You know, mm-hmm. I spent some time in LA too, about a year, mm-hmm. um, and then ended up in New York for about six, six okay. years total. And what was the going like up there? Did you get into a band or, or, or what happened I did. I, I found a band uh, through Craigslist. So much of my story is <laughs> involves Craigslist. It's, it's crazy. Now you're talking to a guy who has never used Craigslist in my life. Good. I don't know the first thing about it. No need. Don't go on there. Uh, <laughs> I'm intrigued, though. It's a... 
Yeah, it's an experience. It's always an experience. Um, I found this group of guys. Uh, we connected. We had a, you know, a fairly good chemistry. So we started playing shows. They were already an established band. Um, their front man had their their previous front man before I came along also had. I'd say like mental health, substance abuse issues mm-hmm. um, to the point where they could no longer rely on him to, to come to shows and, and bang stuff out. But they had a pretty decent audience, especially for the city. It's not easy to get people out to, to shows up there. Uh, so we hit it off and started collaborating and um, formed a band. They had a pretty good run there for a while. Uh, never broke like we wanted to, mm-hmm. but uh, enough to have made the experience, you know, to to justify doing it, yeah. I'd say. To make it somewhat worthwhile. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so you go up there, and did things just sort of dwindle, tail off and dwindle and fall apart? or? Well, we were being courted by... A few, you know, we're talking to some publishing companies and some labels, and they were putting us with producers that were, that doubled as outside songwriters, and I'm, you know, I, this is something I'll have to, like, reconcile eventually, but I, I was kind of reluctant to outside influence mm-hmm. over the songs, which made the, the process of working with them and attempting to write material together a little bit difficult, um, and I was so fried from living there and working retail, you know, 40, 45 hours a week. What doing, kind of retail? I work in bakeries, <laughs> you know, like cupcake shops and donut okay. shops. And, okay. Um, and all that was fun, but uh, it was exhausting. And, and the drugs certainly played a part in, like, just wearing me out up there. Um, okay, now the drugs, yes. Yeah, sorry, I don't mean to. They're very much... Uh, big part of this story now um what were you doing were you into it on i mean did you get into that here was that a thing that you just jumped into up there how'd that come about uh you know six years old spinning around you like you like feeling dizzy (laughs) and you kind (laughs) of know that maybe there's trouble ahead i you know i i was actually all throughout high school i didn't party at all i was very clean um it, interestingly, the first, the last like long form essay kind of thing that I wrote, like this piece that we're talking about today, was in fifth grade for Dare about how I would never do drugs, <laughs> and it won a medal. I've got the Dare medal <laughs> for this essay, and uh, kind of took a one eighty. It, it sure did. I gotta frame them both, put them side by side. But uh, yeah, it it came later. I'd say like nineteen twenty, I started drinking, and then comes weed, and then comes you know. Sounds like the usual progression. Totally. It's, you know, the oldest story. All right. So so you get up there and you start getting into that stuff. And it sounds as though you got way into that stuff. I got way into it. You know, alcohol is one thing. Weed is another. All these things. The first time I took Xanax was a transformative experience. I mean, I felt like... This is how normal people feel. They can walk down the street. They can make eye contact with a stranger and smile. And they don't, you know, it doesn't feel like a million eyes are are burning into them, which is 
you know, I think how a lot of addicts feel when they find, when they find their thing, Mm -hmm. like, Oh, this is the thing that makes me feel normal and able to cope with the world around me. And it's the uh, thing that makes you able to be like everybody else. Exactly. And that's, I guess that's what you were incapable of without it and looking to find. Certainly. I, I've, I've been looking for that my entire life, you know, that sense of just that peace of mind and, and feeling like a normal person. <laughs> Did it, um, you know, just from a musician standpoint, when you're taking all those drugs, you know, I've been there before uh, in terms of wanting creative influence, like anything that'll help make a, make me write a good song. I'm, I'm going to do that. Sure. Was, was that one of the reasons that you, you kind of dug into that lifestyle is because you felt like, oh, my songs are so much better. Oh, I sound so much better. I, I'm much more creative. Was it, was it, was it that a part of it or was it like, no, I need to take these drugs to escape reality? You know, uh, that's a great question. You know, it was a little bit of both. There was a creative, uh, burst from it. Sure. Yeah. You know, I'm a real conventional pop writer. It's like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, major key, you mm-hmm. know, little melodies and stuff like that. Nothing wrong with that. Of course. No, not at all. Still, still love it. Um, but taking benzos, you you just approach, or I did anyway, like the writing process became totally different. It became a lot more adventurous, a lot more freewheeling, uh, led to some really interesting tracks that like I, I do listen to now and I'm like, man, that's, that's cool. <laughs> you know, it's weird. It's weird. It's out there. It's cool. Um, in terms of, I mean, that, that did not last long. Uh, eventually then it became not something that helped creatively. It became something that just like, you know, it makes you okay to just sit on the couch for eight hours. You don't feel compelled to really express yourself at all artistically. And it dries up pretty quickly, but it, it did. Yeah. It opened up, it opened up some creative. Yeah. You know, but eventually it got on top of you. It did quickly get on top of me quickly. Yeah. The tolerance you, Xanax, it, I mean, benzos are insidious. They are, they are a dangerous drug. They, you, you build a tolerance to them so quickly. Um, you lose your ability to regulate your own emotions. You're irritable and you're apathetic and just, you know, the light inside of you goes out. Yeah. Now, were you aware that it was this way while all this was going on or, or do you just glide along and, and think that it's all normal or. Yeah. You glide along. You think, you know, you justify it in your mind. You, uh, whether it's denial or whether you're just so, uh, underneath the weight of the substance, I'm not sure, but I did not at the time understand what I was doing to myself or what the long-term impacts of it would be on me or my brain or, you know, it, it, it took a seismic thing to, to change how I, my relationship. And you had no one around that either would tell you or that you would listen to? You know, I was in a relationship and, uh, she was very patient with me. I, I was doing a lot of addict behavior, just lying and being unreliable. And, uh, eventually I mean, you know, after that ended, I, I was kind of just alone. But, my, you know, my parents knew. I, I never hit it, really. You know, everybody knew that I was struggling. But I 
also kind of have a way of being able to convince people that I'm okay, mm-hmm. you know, to sell them on the idea that I, this is true, this is a problem, but really I'm, I'm fine and it's going to be fine and I'm functioning and I'm going to work on time. And, you know, I don't know that anybody knew how, how bad it had gotten. So you would tell your parents that and they'd just go, oh, okay, he says he's okay, so he's okay? Well, you know, my mom was in Dallas. My yeah. dad was in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they couldn't really see me. Uh, but, I, you know, when we talk about it, I would say, you know, that, yeah, I was, you know, obviously, I don't know. I, it's unfair to them to say that, I, that they had really any idea of, of any of it, uh, with the drug abuse or or the, the mental health, how precarious all that was. They didn't know. You know, yeah. I, I tried very hard to, to keep that from them. Um, usually in situations like this, and I'm talking well, well beyond anything I would actually know about here because I don't have that kind of personality and my experience with drugs has been pretty limited to the shit that we would mess with in the 60s, you know? Sure. So... I'm not real what you would call hip. Oh, God. Well, well, I bet some of that stuff, like y'all didn't know what you were doing in the 60s, Mike. You know, like I feel like some of that stuff is, is even more unsafe because it's just, it's so new, you know? At least yeah. now you kind of know what's out there and what to stay away from. I think in the 60s, psychedelics was just like so new and popular that you could take something that just really messed with your mind, you know, and now I feel yeah, like it's and a lot I, more. And I knew a lot of people who did. Yeah, it's a different game now, for yeah, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a different game, but um, how did you know when you'd had enough or when – what happened to make you say, I, all right, I got I to gotta get a, a handle on this? No, I tried a bunch of times. I went through – Cold turkey withdraw probably three or four times before it's stuck. Was um, that tough? Oh, it's horrible. It's hell. It's something that I truly would not wish on anyone in the world. Did you have anybody there with you while you were doing that? Uh, one time I was with my dad. He let me stay in his guest room. Another time I was with my mom. One of the times was in New York. Um, you know, my again, my girlfriend at the time was uh, was around for it and trying to help me out. But it is... Do you have to tell your parents what was going on and what you were going to do and how oh, this yeah. was going to be and everything? Yeah. What I, was that conversation like? Hard. Hard. You know, they, uh, I can only imagine how helpless they felt um, watching me go through it. I mean, you, you are not able to function during, I mean, and it's a long withdrawal too. It takes a long time for your body to. How long? Oh my God. Um, are we talking weeks? We're talking weeks at least. Yeah, I mean, you you still feel those. I mean, I feel the reverberations of it to this what, day. What is what is that process? And I don't. Want, you can go as far detailed into this as you want. What is that process? Can you not eat? Can you not function? You know, how does that affect you when you're weeks of withdrawal? Obviously, your body's saying, "Feed me these drugs." When you don't do that, what's the what's the, the I guess consequence of that? You know, physically, emotionally. It's heavy. Yeah. It's a heavy consequence. I, you know, Xanax is, along with alcohol, the only drug uh, that the withdrawal alone from it can kill you. Oh, wow. Um, any other drug. So it's recommended that they, you do it under medical supervision and you mm-hmm. go see a doctor and they, you know, they do it that way. I did it alone. 
I tried to taper, you know, I would have 15 pills left and think, okay, well, I can, you know, take half of one for a week and then a quarter of a one. I tried to take it down on my own. I was trying to right. be safe about it. But you do, I mean, it feels like your nerves are on fire. You are jittery and shaky and you shadows cause just immense panic. You know, you're taking a shower and the shower curtain flutters and you're just i mean terror mm-hmm. you're filled with terror that sounds like a normal day for me <laughs> <laughs> maybe so maybe it is a more universal experience <laughs> you're scared of all the shadows yeah all right, uh, all right so um your girlfriend was supportive through all this or or what was the scene like between you two she tried. She tried. She was supportive. Um, you know, the problem The problem with, with that relationship and kind of with like all those withdrawals that I tried to do were that I didn't want to quit. Yeah. The, you know, her wanting me to quit and feeling so supportive about helping me quit doesn't didn't change the fact that I still wanted to take Xanax and smoke weed and just not, you know, deal with anything. Yeah. Um, and so she she did her best. Everybody did their best. My parents did their best. My sister did her best. You know, everybody tried. But you cannot do something like that if you don't want to. That's addiction. If you know, same yeah. with trying sure. to quit smoking. Sure. You know, you you really got to want it. So. And that's the whole key to it. I'd say so. Just just reaching that point to where you either. I've decided you want to do it or where you realize you've got to do it. Sure. Yes. One or the other. Absolutely. All right. So um, how did your, let's talk about your brother a little bit because he's also a big player in this story. Big, big player. Yeah. Um, How, where was he during all this or what, what was the situation with you two during all this? Sure. So he was living in Denver. Uh, he was going to school up there, uh, had a job. Uh, I was in New York. I think he probably left. You know, the timeline's a little fuzzy. That's that's another thing about, about Xanax is it just it decimates your memory. So there are, there are huge portions of my life that are just missing in my brain. I, yeah. I don't remember. But I do, you know, I think he left for Denver around the same time I left for New York. And then, you know, we'd text we we were both super busy and you know just life has that way of you you assume you'll get it tomorrow yeah were you close growing up and everything we were yeah we were i mean we were very different kinds of people but he he was my older brother you know he he yeah I, we were we were we were close yeah and tell everybody what happened to him or what yeah so bonner uh also was a partier <laughs> in mm-hmm. his teens and 20s mm-hmm. and uh like to have a good time and you know he was 35 um when he he was three years older he was 35 when he passed and you know his life was going great he had cleaned up he was soaked he'd calmed down he was getting into like wine and you know the finer, you know, just the right, things you, right. you settle down and you, yeah. you get into other things stuff. Things seem to normalize for him. Exactly. Uh, so we were all excited and, and proud of that. And then, uh, you know, apparently 
just, you know, he had a weekend where he wanted to uh, go, go live it up a little bit and uh, turned out to have gone a little too hard um, that weekend. And, you know, a couple days later, I, I got the call from my mom that, he, that we'd lost him. So, uh, devastating. Truly. Yeah. It was truly devastating. Was this while you were in New York or? It was. Yeah. I'd actually, I had my first run in New York, which is like four or five years. And I came back to Dallas to try to get clean, failed, but still decided to go back up to New York again anyway and try again. Mm -hmm. So I had been there for maybe two months the second time around when I got the call that that he had died. And at that point it's like, you know, I'm 31 years old. I'm got all these drugs in my system. I, I just lost my brother. Like, what am I doing? So, uh, immediately got on a plane, came down, uh, been here since. So that was the thing that brought me back to Texas. Got it. Have felt the urge to obviously be close to family, my mom. All right. Now let's get into the thing that you latched on to, to bring you back around because this is where the story takes that sports turn. Luca. Yes. You're a big basketball guy. I am. You and your brother both were. Yes. Big basketball fans. Yes. Big Mavericks fans. If I'm not mistaken, I believe I'm seeing the cowboy hand on a basketball <laughs> logo tattooed on your arm there. You are. You the are. original Mavericks logo. That's right. Why did you choose that logo and not the uh, 2002 uh, <laughs> horse face, spiky, whatever? I'm curious. Uh, yeah, you're curious. Uh, <laughs> you're saying that logo's better? Okay, cool. Yeah, uh, it's ahead. a little better. Yeah. Um, yeah, I got this after game two of the 2011 finals cause it was tied up yes. and it was the last chance to do it without doing it just because they had won. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't want it to be a reaction to them winning. I wanted it to be cause I love the Mavs. So Boom. worked out. Thank yeah, God. It did work out. Yeah. But I love the Mavs. We grew up watching them together. Um, you know, who are your first Mavericks guys? <sighs> the, I, I have to say for me, strangely, Jerry Stackhouse which is a little, you know, I was I was probably a teenager I think when when Stack came along, mm-hmm. but you know, my relation he was much more into basketball growing up. Yeah. I I it was the Jordan years, so of course as a child you're you're engaged on that level. There's Space Jam and there's, you know, all this sure. cool stuff, but I, I my relationship with sports developed um closer to my 20s, um kind of that 04, 05, 06 Mavs, you know, that first run of the finals was was huge. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I love Jerry Stackhouse. Uh, you know, to, obviously like every good Dallas boy, Dirk is a, of course the, it goes without saying, but, um, yeah, we, Stackhouse was pretty much the, he was, that's the, the, the that first guy that drew you in huh? first Jersey. I bought. Yeah. yeah. I liked his attitude. I liked his, you know, he was mm. a fighter out there. So it, it it was fun. It was fun to watch him. And that was something you and Bonner did together. You were both basketball guys, like together and everything. He was. Well, you know, throughout our teenage years, you know, he was he was like kind of a party guy. He was a little bit of a jock. He played soccer, and I was like a musician. And jocks bullied me, and so mm-hmm. I, I had this clear view in my mind that like, okay, there's there's the sports guys, and then there's the arts guys. And it, honestly, I, I got to credit you and your work with the ticket for 
for kind of pointing out to me that like, no, these things actually are very much linked and you can't have one without the other. And it's the same language. And so I came to all that later, but, um, when I did really start to get into the Mavericks and, and watching the NBA, that, that led to another, that led to a deeper connection between me and Bonner. You know, suddenly we had this, the super cool thing in common that we could always talk about and always be excited about. So it was, you ever really had anything like that before? Not really. No, we, we were, we were very, very different. Yeah. Different interests. Okay. Um, so this was a, a thing that united us and we carried with us, you know, the rest of the way. Okay. So time rolls on. Jerry Stackhouse <laughs> comes and goes. He does. Um, was Luca the next guy that you latched onto or were there others in between there? Or? Oh, tons, tons. I mean, I got obsessive about the NBA. Once those floodgates opened, it was, ah, okay. it was not only just watching every Mavericks game. It was watching every game I could, you know, I loved those, um, Pistons teams in the mid two thousands. I loved Chauncey Billups. I loved Rasheed Wallace. Mm-hmm. Um, Ben Wallace, Ben Wallace mm-hmm. is a great, great Ben Wallace. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it became more of a, more of just a passion, yeah. a deep passion for the sport and players and, you know, did it take the place of music? It certainly ended up rival ended up rivaling in a way that I was not expecting. You know, it it got it got a, a it became an intense love. Yeah, on par with music for sure. Okay, so how did Luca and the arrival of when was the first time you heard his name? So in the months leading up to the draft, you know, you're checking the draft, the mock drafts, right. seeing what people are saying. You know, I didn't watch him with Real Madrid. I was at that point, that was probably my lowest point in terms of drugs and, uh, you know, I just, just kind of out of it in general, but I was paying attention to the mock drafts. I saw his name, the draft night trade happened and you're starting to get excited and looking at all of his highlights. And then, um, then yeah, he started playing and from the second he took the, you know, took the court, it was just obvious what, how special of a player he was. And, at that moment in time, I, I needed it. I needed it. I needed Luka Doncic to come play for the Dallas Mavericks. <laughs> I, I didn't know it, but... And he brought you back. He did. It, it You know, I, I wrote the article because I, you know, it was for internal use only. I was not meaning to really share it with the world. When Fansite had agreed to publish it, I thought maybe it would get two or three likes and, and a retweet. So I, I wasn't... To me, it was just an exercise to get the like complicated reasons that I had such a human love for this kid um, out of my head. You know, there, there are so many reasons to love Luka Doncic as a basketball player. And even as a person, you, you see him at, with the press and you see him with the kids on the sidelines and you just like, what a great kid. But the, the love that I felt for him as a result of what he gave to me in my darkest moment just by playing basketball is something that I, I felt the need to, to get out, to get out of my head, you know. You ever met him? Uh, I did, you know, shortly after Bonner passed, I, I mean, I was messed up. Um, but he was doing his first autograph signing at the Nebraska Furniture Mart in the colony. Yeah. <laughs> Have you been out there? <laughs> that's a, that's I know compound. what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. Um, and you know, you could tell he's fresh off the plane. He just got drafted. He's coming off the championship, you know I mean? He's, 
it must have been insane for him to walk and see a, a crowd of people in this crazy retail spot in the colony. But, uh, you know, I went and I, I took one of Bonner's old shirts and I, I got him to sign it. And, um, the, you know, that's the only interaction we've, we've ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, that, that carried me through some really, uh, dark. Moments. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's really difficult for me to get my head around that whole mentality because, you know, I came up like through the media and everything. Sure. And I was a fairly big fan myself growing up, you know, and I always liked going to get autographs when I was a kid and would go to cowboy games and everything. I would hang around the, the South end of the cotton bowl where the locker rooms were and wait for those guys to come around at Cowboys games and Dallas Texans games and get autographs and whatnot. I was a big minor league baseball fan because we didn't have major league baseball back then. Sure. And I would go to those games and I always knew who the guys who were kind of on the way up and might have a chance to, you know, turn into something in the major leagues were, and I would seek them out. So totally. So I would, I got into it like that, but I have never, I mean, then I got in the media and that kind of cooled me out on all that. That kind of took a little bit of the fanboy. In fact, it took all of the fanboy out of me. I believe it. And I was taught that uh, you were to be an objective observer of sure. these guys. And when they do something good, praise them. When they suck, say that too. Sure. You know? And the point is, you don't get too close to these guys. And I always, that, that was kind of always the ethos that I operated by when I was in the game and actually around those guys. But invariably, there are those that you do get to know a little bit better than some others. And I will tell you, I was let down by some of those guys. Some of those guys that I actually got to know would later on turn out to be not exactly what I thought they were. Do you fear something like that might happen for you with Luca? That's a great question. I know. I mean, in terms of like who I, who I understand him to be as a human yeah, yeah. being. Yeah, uh, what if he turns out to not be like that? Well, at least he was a good player. At least he was a good yeah, player. Yeah, a hell of a player. And he, you know, I, but all these guys I knew were great not players, to answer, too. Sure. You know, I, I think it's what you saw on the court that brought you back more than what Luca was putting out there on social media. Does that oh, make sense? Of course, It was yeah. more like the, the beauty of the game that, Absolutely. He, that he brought back and, and highlighted, you know. Well, it's the joy that kid plays with. Right. I mean, yeah. he's freaking happy to be out there playing basketball yeah. and everybody can see it. And that's infectious. Um, mm-hmm. And so, make no mistake. I love the player. Yeah. I really, really do love the player. Now there are a couple of things that concern me a little bit. Like, is he going to stay? Yes. That, that's, that's my, that was my answer. That's the first thing that popped in my head about your question is like, well, you know, if he goes to the Lakers, that would be, that would, that would be devastating for you. It would be hard, yeah. And, and make no mistake, I wouldn't like it either. No, but I bet not. <laughs> um, but see, the, the, 
I have a little bit of a built-in defense mechanism sure. against that. You don't. You've been hurt before. Yeah. Yeah, you <laughs> yeah. don't. Um, no, I don't. But I, I'm also, you know, I'm, I'm realistic about, you know, he's a superstar. And, and whatever his path takes, you know, we, we, it would be naive of any Mavericks fan to, to expect him to do what Dirk did. Um, so I, I, you know, whatever decisions he makes in his career, I'll never begrudge him anything. Yeah. Um, I can separate. That's a very mature attitude. I well, respect that. that I, I appreciate that. I mean, I, I can separate my, I mean, as a Mavericks fan, will I be disappointed? Of course. But as a human being, like I'll always be grateful to Luka Doncic for just being such a. Oh yeah. I mean, he, he did. Great so, player. He apparently did something for you that. You would never be able to repay him for never. Oh no, never. I, I mean, you're you're. I'm lying in bed for eight hours a day. I'm playing Fortnite the rest of the time. I'm getting fat. I'm you know gaining weight. I'm just fucking. I'm, I'm so sorry, guys. I'm sorry. Okay, it's a podcast. <laughs> okay, I'm just miserable. I'm miserable. I'm. I have nothing to live for. I've lost my brother. This these drugs that I relied on to function in the world, I no longer have. My career as a musician is gone, detonated, blown up. I just had nothing. And you're, you're in this existential dread is just consuming you. And then out of nowhere, there's a reason to like wake up and I got to make it to 8 PM. I got to watch the game. And then you, that snowballs into other things in the world that, make it clear how important it is to keep going. And so I, you're right. I'll never be able to repay him for, for that. And, you know, it's not even anything that he, he did really, you know, mm-hmm. that he was conscious of doing. Right. Um, just being him. Just being him. Yeah. And I'm very grateful to him for that. Pretty awesome story, man. Thank you, Mike. Thanks pretty, so much. pretty awesome story. Thank you. So where do you think the road's going to take you here? I'm not sure. I wish I had had any idea that the response would have been so good to this. I maybe would have been a little bit prepared to try to It's a very well-written story, too. Yes. Good writer. Everyone that's hearing this needs to read this. Don't just say, oh, I know his story. Because you need to – the way it's written now, it's on the page. You don't know this story. Yeah, it's incredibly well-written. And it's funny you say that because Colin and I, you know, grew up in the local music scene here. and That's true. And cross paths – decades ago old buddies yeah. yeah and and you send me this article mike like hey i uh, want to get this guy on the podcast i yeah, didn't even click I, the article because i was working i click it later in the day and i see it it's calling cable i'm like oh my god <laughs> you know? and it was so well done i was like how did i not know this about him and we'd reconnected and all that so yeah man definitely everyone needs to, to read it you know when read i first it. started doing this thing at the athletic one of the things that really appealed to me about it was that first night that I sat down, Kent, with yeah. you and Orr. You know, at that time, I just walked away. I'm not trying to make this about me. Please, here, no. But I just stepped away from the gig, and I didn't have any idea if anybody was going to want me to do anything or not. But you guys hit me up, like, straight away. Mm-hmm. And I believe two nights after the video posted, I was sitting in the Lakewood Landing with you guys. Yeah. And you were saying, we want you in our, our podcast space. And I said, okay. What do you want me to do? And they said, just be you. Give us what's on Mike's mind. Just be you. And that really, really appealed to me. And, you know, that's kind of connected to, to this a little bit. You know, the, the, I mean, I was reading this story and I thought this is something that I could do, but I better let Kent and Orr 
see this first. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, this is one that I figured I'd better blow by you guys first. No, I mean, that's a good point. It's got such such a connection to this city, to your background in music, Mike, to, you know, the just the life story that it is. Of, yeah. Of, I mean, it had it all, but yeah. but still it was so far outside the normal bounds of what you might find at right. The Athletic that I figured I'd better get you boys to sign off on it. And so I'm glad you did, Mike, because because I, you know, I I would have read the story and known Colin and be like, wow, great. But I never would have thought to, to have him share. <laughs> honestly to share a story on this podcast has been great. Oh, and, it's a thrill for me. Like, My God. Like, uh, honestly, if you're if you're from Dallas, you know, Mike included, watch out for this guy because he's he's an incredible songwriter, musician. He's not, oh, you know, he's very humble about that. But like, I'm sure labels in New York were were fighting over each other to try to get this guy on something so like this is just the beginning of a whole new like chapter for the colin cable story and what music is going to come from this and awesome i can't wait i hope so, so. thank yeah. you so much for that Thanks. i really appreciate that. so where are you at today you okay and everything i'm okay um you know it's by no means over <laughs> the this it never ends does it never does no the fight keeps going um but i feel hopeful and i feel you know i'm walking around smiling um, truly, which yeah. a year ago would have you been seemed like a great dude. Unthinkable. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Uh, I, you know, uh, maybe, you know, prospective employers who Google my name after this are going to see that article and just to them, just please know that I am clean and I'm <laughs> good and it's all good and everything's. Yeah, if you're listening to this podcast and you need a good hand, here he is. Here I am, Mark Cuban. Let me mop the floor. <laughs> to, to wrap, to wrap this on my end, Mike. Um, did you feel like you needed to tell this story? Like this was the nail in the coffin to moving past your past life. Was this story putting it out there and like clearing the air, so to speak, you know, like if you hadn't written this article, do you think you'd be mentally where you are today? Like this was part of the the therapy of it all. That's a great question because it's, it seems like you did like this was it like, and I'm going to tell my story and I wanted other people to learn from this and tomorrow's a new day. You know, that's what it felt like to me reading it. It was healing. Mm-hmm. I didn't know at the time that, that I needed to do it. You know, I mean, it's some part of my brain, I guess, realized that this was something I needed to think through and work through and mm-hmm. write about. And But at the time, it wasn't necessarily a conscious thing. Um, you know, I, I never really intended to share it. Um, Fansite had put out a tweet about their, they were accepting freelance submissions, and it was, you know, kind of a tight rent month or whatever. Yeah. So I just fired it off because I didn't think it would find an audience but it seems to be um it seems to be helping people you know people who are reading it and reaching out have found some something in it that that it's resonating somehow some way the universe made this happen and compelled you to to do it and i think it's all for a reason no telling how many people locally read this and were affected by it you know and well, I, ha- I have to say, they, they sent me the analytics for for it after the first 12 hours, and they were like, you know, 15,000 people read this in the first 12 hours, and I thought, if you took all of my Spotify plays, combined them, <laughs> multiplied them by 100. Well, you just know, the people that are sharing, didn't Luca share this, share it, retweet it or something? It did, it made its way like, to Luca. Crap. I mean, wow. you know, um, 
a few a few high profile accounts retweeted it. You know, Mark Cuban among them, and then that's yeah. how I think Luca found it, and that's mm-hmm. obviously a thrill. You know, that's super cool. That's <laughs> so, amazing, man. Just congrats. Well, you'll be doing lunch so with him like next week. Yeah, yeah, you'll you'll get a you'll be on on courtside when that happens. Mark will hook it up, and yeah, that'll be that'll be awesome, man. To be able to kind of live the you know reap the benefits of of telling your story. You know, it's great. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. He is Colin Cable, and you are listening to him right here on Square One. I'm Mike Reiner. Thank you for being with us. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.